This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Sarah Stein Greenberg. Sarah is the executive director of the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford University, better known as D School. And she's built her career on helping companies unlock innovation and creativity. She's also the author of a new book, Creative Acts for Curious People. And in this episode, we talk about how boredom helps you to be creative, the questions to ask instead of making small talk, how design can help you reframe your problems, ways to develop empathy, and much more. It's a book chock full of takeaways, and the conversation is too. This is Sarah Stein Greenberg. So I'm with Sarah Stein Greenberg. How are you? I'm great, Graham. It's so nice to be here. So I have book envy, right? Um, because your book is so beautiful. Like just the Thank you. design of it. So I'm just holding this up for the, the video if you're watching this on the YouTube version of, of Beyond Busy. Um, and the book is Creative Acts for Curious People, How to Think, Create and Lead in Unconventional Ways. Um, I've been really enjoying it. So just wanted to start by saying congrats on the book. And we were just talking before we started here, you've been doing a whole bunch of podcasts talking to people about the book. So I'm going to try and uh, bring in some stuff that you've not talked about before and make this um, interesting uh, for you. So let's talk about the book and your um, job. So your day job is you're the executive director of the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, which is sort of more commonly, I guess, known as D-School at Stanford University. Uh, so do you want to start just by telling us about that? Like, so so what is D-School and, uh, and, and what is it that you do? Yeah, the D-School got started about 15 years ago. And we were kind of this unconventional experiment on the edge of campus. Uh, the only space available at the time was a little trailer that the faculty kind of went in and, and pulled up the carpet and, you know, put in some some tables and chairs. It was like really rough and ready. And um, it was... It was based on the idea that if we could get students and faculty from all different parts of the university collaborating together and thinking about creative problem solving with the, the needs of the people they were designing for in mind, they might produce some really interesting and unusual kind of new solutions, new innovations. And actually, that that is what has happened. So now we routinely offer between 30 and 50 classes a year. We have students from all over the campus who study together. And, you know, there, there are a lot of classes where you could maybe sit next to somebody from a different department, but it is a little bit more unusual to, as a student, have the opportunity to figure out what's it like to really work closely with somebody who thinks very, very differently than yeah. I do. Yeah. So you might have a team of students that's like a business student and a medical student and a policy student. And those three people are going to think about the opportunities and the needs of the people they're designing for in a really new way. So we need, of course, then a common language for them to work through an open-ended, messy, real-world problem. And that's what we teach. We teach design. 
as a way for people from all these different disciplinary perspectives to come together and tackle these kinds of ambiguous challenges. I guess when some people think of design, they think of, you know, graphic design or architecture and Design's a much bigger and wider space than that, right? So give us your definition of design. I mean, I think of design as a creative problem-solving approach, and it can be used to build buildings or to create logos, as you know, in the examples that you just mentioned. But we're seeing all kinds of new uses in the past, I would say, 20, 25 years. Design has started migrating into all kinds of different spaces so, for example, one of the projects that I talk about in the book um, was done by an amazing woman named Jill Violet, who is an education specialist. And she was really looking at the challenges around substitute teaching in the U.S. And it turns out that in the U.S., uh, 10% of a child's instructional time in most public schools is spent with a substitute, like when the main teacher is sick or, you know, can't, can't come to work for some reason, that's a lot of time. Yeah. And there are all kinds of broken aspects of that system, whether people are trained, whether people come back and are retained within schools, really fragmented, messy system. So she really took a fresh look at what that system might need to produce better educational results for students. And she came up with all kinds of ideas using design. And that's one of those examples of like, you wouldn't think like, oh, substitute teaching is a great opportunity for innovation, but actually it's just the kind of situation where there are a lot of competing needs, perhaps in a very resource constrained environment in many school districts. And yet there are people who are well-intentioned, who really want to make a difference. And if you can figure out ways to better connect and align all of those different stakeholders and design, in this case, a technology platform, a training approach that could be implemented at low cost in many places, you could actually significantly improve the situation. And that's the kind of thing that we see design being used for these days. That's And that's a, a newer phenomenon. Yeah. And I guess that's where curiosity comes in, right? So, I mean, my girlfriend's always um, sort of bemoaning me for the fact that as we're walking around, like in my head, I'm sort of fixing things and thinking about stuff. And, um, you know, I, I, I think sometimes if you've got a very curious brain, then, which I, I feel like I do, then you're always trying to spot those opportunities or to, to spot what the problems are and define problems and that kind of thing. Um, what would you say, say to someone who maybe doesn't think like that? Um, I'm quite jealous of the people that don't think like that because I think they could just be more peace, peaceful in their minds. <laughs> it's not worrying with all this stuff. But if you don't think in that very curious way, what would you say to someone like that you know, in terms of how could they change that? What what could they do to, to think in a, in a more design-led way? Well, in the book, there are a whole set of practices and assignments that we teach all the time at, at Stanford in our classes. And there's a set of those that are about really cultivating your ability to notice in new ways and to spot opportunities that are kind of hiding in plain sight. Uh, so one of my favorite ones in that, uh, in that kind of genre is called the derive. And the derive is like, if you are stuck on a problem or you just feel like you're kind of, you're lacking curiosity, you're kind of, you know, sort of stuck in a, in a routine, um, it, the derive is just a fantastic uh, approach. So it involves taking 30 minutes, maybe an hour and taking a walk in a familiar neighborhood or, or part of the place, uh, the city that you live in. And instead of planning your route in advance, you let your route be dictated by what you notice along the way. So you might choose to follow things that are just the color yellow. 
And you might walk up to that first thing that you spot that's yellow and investigate it, maybe make some notes about what you're seeing. And then you look around and find that next thing that's yellow and on and on like that. And it sounds really simple, but something shifts subtly in how your brain takes in detail and notices things that you may have been walking by for years and never noticed. And there's something about that experience that leads you into a more reflective space. So I've been, you know, having people do that often as part of talking about the book and people will come back and say, I had this epiphany about the thing that I'm working on that I just, it was like a breakthrough moment or thinking about a deeper set of values. So I had uh, somebody who decided to follow lines, uh, like straight lines around, around her area. And then really came back and was thinking about like, constraints in her life and ways in which she wanted to challenge boundaries that like she doesn't really want to think of as as fixed boundaries. So you get a wide range of observations and ahas and just something as simple as a 30 or 60 minute investment in that ability to shift what your brain is taking in and what your brain is filtering out can lead to all kinds of other benefits. And I guess if someone's listening to this and thinking, well, I'm already just chock full my diary's full how do I make the time for that I mean you can combine this with your lunchtime or walking the dog or all kinds of other things right like it's it's walking around it's just doing conventional things but just in a really different way that's exactly right another set of my favorite ones that are kind of in the same vein that you can do while you are you know waiting in line are called the micro mindfulness exercises so that involves like the discipline to instead of taking out your phone while you're waiting in line to get your coffee or you know pick up your dry cleaning keep your phone in your pocket and commit to doing that for the whole morning, yeah. right? Every time you're waiting for something, just don't take out your phone and see what happens in your brain and actually do a little tiny little piece of reflection about that at the end. And that's paired with a couple of other exercises. There's one called mindfulness of doors. So it, it, just noting the experience right before you leave one space and enter a new space, just taking that you know five seconds to tune your attention in a new way and those are the kinds of practices that can help you see what you're missing around you and just lead you into a more calm and generative space. Yeah, I remember as you were talking about that, I just remember a few years ago, I did this year of, I did this thing called extreme productivity experiments. And the idea was to, so I did things like eating the optimum diet for productivity. I did a month where um, every hour I meditated for the first 10 minutes of the hour and then worked the rest. I did a thing called flipping the nine to five, where instead of working nine to five, work five to nine. And I did that in the morning. And then for a couple of weeks, I did it in the evening. And so all these different experiments. And one of the ones that really struck, um, you know, really struck me and kind of stuck with me for a long time was I did this one called the dice man. So every time I was stuck or every time I didn't know the answer to something, I had to get out the dice and then I had to come up with the options and just make the decision by dice. So just by doing that, I had to come up with either an odds and evens, you know, two options. But usually what I was doing was coming up with, let's say, like three different options or six different options. And it's amazing, isn't it, how the brain often thinks in this very binary way of like, it's either this or that. And when you've got to do six options, like a lot of those ideas you know, were just hiding in plain plain sight. They were just there. But like, I w- wasn't usually thinking of them and just having that ability to, to just say the framework is there. I'm now going to put stuff in it just helps the brain to kind of do something else. I love that example. I mean, that is just a perfect example of this tiny little bit of creative prompting. And it's almost like you're, you're creating a little game for yourself and then you have to just respond and work within yeah. those rules. Yeah. 
And that's just a brilliant example of like your creativity responds to having a little bit of a constraint mm. and, and a little bit of that rule set that you've devised. And there is just so many wonderful ways that you can apply that. So another, another example um, that you're making me think about is this just really, really fun uh, kind of game that one of our designers um, and, and teachers, Molly Wilson, invented called Protobot. So Protobot is like a, it's a, it's a little robot you can access it online and it just gives you a little prompt of something to make, something to build. And it's a great way to kind of like unlock, you know, use that little bit of randomness to unlock, you know, your ability to come up with new ideas or to build prototypes or to experiment um, with, you know, five or 10 minutes uh, just to come up with some some quick ideas and responses to those prompts. Yeah. And the book is just full of these tools. There's a few I wanted to talk to you about. Um, we mentioned, you mentioned there the, the micro mindfulness stuff and the idea of, you know, in many ways, rather than taking the easy option of taking your phone out of your pocket and scrolling through Instagram or whatever, just giving yourself that space to be a little, a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more bored. And there's an exercise in the book called tethering. Do you want to explain tethering? Because that really struck me as something that felt quite uncomfortable, but probably something that would be really productive in terms of the the creativity and the problem solving that, that might come from it. Yeah. You went right for one of the, probably one of the most challenging ones in the book, which I, I appreciate. Um, yeah. So tether is uh, this idea that exactly as you just said, you root yourself to one space and you let yourself get bored, like get beyond the normal things that you might notice about the environment that you're in. So you might pick a museum, you might pick a town square, like any place that's comfortable to sit for a few hours you bring a notebook and you just challenge yourself to continue to observe and to document what you're seeing. And you're going to run out of things to note down in maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour. And then you're going to start to look in a new way. So you might start to think about, well, what was here before this current town square was built? Like, I'm going to, I'm going to notice what was you know happening, but and what what's going to be here a thousand years from now, right? Or you might think about um, instead of just the objects, you might think about the interactions that you're seeing and then the behaviors. And then maybe you can start to think about or speculate about the motivations of the people who are interacting in the ways that you're observing. And so you can you can investigate the human dimension. You can investigate the, the, the time dimension. And all of these are just ways of seeing the systems around the, the concrete things you're able to observe and to, and to manifest and or, or I guess that manifest in, in plain sight. So the, the reality is like, there is so much more complexity to any environment that we might be de designing for, to the company that you're working in. There are all of those layers of rules and policies and behaviors and wishes and goals and motivations, right? How do you actually start to unpack and to see into those? How can you see those opportunities in the education system or in, in the business environment, whatever it is that you're designing for? So Tether is also one of those um, real provocations toward noticing in a new way. And it just involves a little bit of time and a little bit of discipline to, to let yourself get into that space where you get into those deeper layers. Why do you think we have to go through the boredom to get there? You know, I think we carry a lot of um, kind of biases, right, about what we initially notice. And those come from good places. Like your brain is wired to basically quickly discern things like, am I in danger? Is this, a, is this a, a place where I feel safe and comfortable? 
Um, and you start to get into patterns of noticing that are based on those routines. But if you want to see opportunities that are, you know, other people are not noticing, that you are not noticing, you actually have to get into that space where you've already gone through all of those obvious observations. And the same thing is true when you're coming up with new ideas, in, when you're in a generative space, right? You often, this is why we talk about um, like in a brainstorm, you want to go for quantity. You want to come up with more ideas than you think are possibly going to be useful because the first 50 or 100 ideas are the obvious ones that are kind of floating around in the culture. There's something you read in a magazine. There's something you saw on YouTube and, and they're kind of already out there. That's why they're coming to you quickly. And if you can push yourself to get beyond that horizon, you might get something more novel. You might get something more useful. And then in design, we believe strongly that you have to actually test those ideas. So even all of those more interesting ideas you might be coming up with after you've gotten rid of the obvious ones, those are still, you know, we kind of question, are they interesting enough? And, and, we, and we then start to think about how do we build those? How do we test them quickly? And that's how we start to move through a design process. Yeah. And that idea of testing might be a good way to just drop in the whole, the story that you start the book with around, is it called NeuraHealth? NeuraHealth? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the courses that you've got is entrepreneurial design for extreme affordability. So taking some of these ideas and how can you apply this to developing economies, uh, you know, to make really big change. Do you want to just tell the story of how how NeuroHealth came about and, and what it is. Yeah. So this was a group of students, just as I described at the beginning, where in this case, there were two medical students and a public policy student and a civil engineer. And so they were partnered with an organization uh, working in Southern India um, called the Narayana uh, Health Hospital chain. The Narayana Health Hospitals, their mission is to deliver extremely high quality care at a large scale, but at a very low cost. And that is, of course, easier said than done. And so our students were really thinking from the perspective of, you know, we're going to go, we're going to, um, you know, observe what's happening. We've, we've gotten kind of a wish list of, of changes from the project partner. And um, we're thinking about efficiency. We're thinking about taking costs out of some process. And they were really thinking, you know, our objective is to design something that will help the clinician, something that will help the hospital administrator achieve this mission. And they saw a lot of opportunities in that vein. But they also saw something that they hadn't expected when they were in the hospital environment and, and interacting with patients and families and others. And what they noticed is that there were lots of people who were waiting in the hospital and they were waiting in the waiting room, just like in any hospital in any part of the world. But they were also waiting in the hallways and outdoors. And what they learned is that these were family members of patients, some of whom had traveled for a long, a long distance and had been waiting for a long time. And they were not well informed about the prognosis of their loved one, about how to take care of them when they came home. And they were um, experiencing a very high degree of stress and anxiety as a result. And so the students were, were really affected quite deeply um, by the difficult experience that these family members were going through. When they came back home to Stanford, after reflecting on it and doing a bunch of analysis of all their findings, they decided that's the need that we're going to try to solve for. We are going to try to kind of close the information gap that we're seeing and design something that actually could alleviate the, the suffering and the stress of these family members. So really different than what they had originally been given as the design brief. And they started by coming up with ideas around how to dramatize 
um, the and and create some educational experiences for these family members around basic healthcare skills, um, hygiene relating to taking care of somebody who's just been through surgery, to, you know, making sure that somebody is breathing well. So they designed these kind of quick videos um, that were like little, almost like little soap operas that showed family members taking care of their loved ones. Their partner started testing these videos and they were actually very surprised that the, the family members responded incredibly positively. And so they went back to India, they started piloting um, and testing this idea further. And um, they, one of the students described to me later on that the second day that they were doing this pilot, the, there was a line around the block. Mm -hmm. People, the kind of word had spread yeah, virally right. within the hospital. People were, were craving exactly this kind of information to better equip them to take care of their loved ones. And the students really felt, okay, we've discovered something. This is a low cost intervention. We think that some new organization is needed to start to make this rigorous, to make sure that it works, and then to scale it throughout the country. And that's exactly what they've done. So all four students um, kind of put other career plans on hold. They started this new organization called Nura Health, and they've now trained well over a million family members across South Asia. They're working with over 150 hospital partners. Um, and it is an amazing story of the kind of impact that you can have when you are open to seeing something, seeing some need or opportunity that's adjacent to what you originally thought the problem was. So we talk about that as a, as a moment of reframing the problem. And that's why when we set students on the kinds of design challenges that we give, the faculty really take a step back and say, you're going to go and observe and you're going to see things that we don't even know about. Yeah. And that, that mindset of when you are trying to solve a problem creatively, if you are not leaving yourself open to that kind of discovery moment, right, to the observation of something that you couldn't have expected to see, then you're really editing out, you're really constraining a lot of the opportunity for innovation. So there's, there's kind of a couple lessons there from that story, right? One, what it looks like to actually develop a really impactful solution, bring it, you know, take it all the way from observation to implementation, but also this idea that that curiosity mindset, that ability to explore, and then the skills to test your ideas in an ongoing and iterative way, that's what can lead you into an entirely new space of innovation. And I love the thing there about just, you know, sending back the one video and just testing it quickly and just... You can you can take that assumption and you could spend months developing something fancy, but actually just get one homemade video, test it, see what happens and get that feedback. Get and the, the students, around the, the block. Students were embarrassed. Yeah. They thought like, have we gone like, is this too silly? Is yeah. this too simple? Yeah. Right. Does this mean we, we saw real suffering? Is this going to meet the need? And what actually turned out to be the case is that because they had um, dramatized it in a way that had some emotion in it, it struck a chord. Right. It actually hit the hit the spot in a way that they couldn't have anticipated. So, again, they were they were willing to test something that was, you know, they, they were going to learn something new about how it landed. And their original prediction was not right in terms of how people actually responded. And that is a lesson we all could use. Right. Like our idea of what the thing is and what the solution is all bound up in our own preferences, our own experiences. And when you are designing for others, getting out of your own way can sometimes involve putting something out there and testing something that you're really not sure what's going to happen, but you're doing it because you want to learn more about the situation and more about the needs of the people that you're designing for. If we just segue on from that, then to just to think about understanding people and the environment more, 
there's a there's a, a exercise you do in the book around stakeholder mapping and this um exercise has been used with like kindergartens to uh to increase enrollment from uh, immigrant families and stuff like this so like um this feels like one of those ones that anybody can do like a- a- anybody listening to this can do this within your business within your team within you know the 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 stuff that you're working on so just Give us the flavor of, of stakeholder mapping and, and what does that look like? So this was a um, exercise designed by Darrell Coleman and his team. He's a Darrell is an alum uh, from from the D school and he uh, or his team developed this this way of thinking very creatively about who in the community might be in support of the solutions or the needs that they're designing for and actually who also might be an antagonist and who are they going to have to work around. So the idea behind stakeholder mapping is you draw three concentric circles and in the middle, you put the, you know, the description of the people that you're designing for, who you're trying to help. In this case, the the project that you mentioned, it was around um, trying to figure out how to enroll more students who are coming from uh, a variety of backgrounds into early education programs. And then you put like all the people in the next circle who you think are, are for that, who are trying to help who might be friendly to that, different players in the education system, the parents. Then you actually put like who might be against it, right? There might be some people from a cost perspective who would be concerned, or there might be some outright political opposition to to certain kinds of um, approaches in this space. And finally, outside of all the circles, you put all the people who are in the community, but who are disengaged. And that is often where Jarrell says an insight will lie of who you might tap but it but then it requires that you actually go and and do the process of like getting more insight and interviewing and trying to bring them into the the frame of the problem. So in this particular case, they realized that there was a very important church that many families in this community were attending, but the church was not playing any kind of role in the educational needs of the students. So they held a fair around enrolling people, you know, more more families in this program. So that's just one one sort of little example of how you might use that tool to recognize where opportunities might lie. And again, it's in that same theme that we think about in design of shifting the frame, right? Not assuming that the way that the problem has been defined, which is like, this is an education problem. Well, no, this is a community problem. So who else might be tapped in this case to, to get involved? And in that, in that particular example, it was, it was that local church. And that's a lovely thing. It's a lovely question to ponder in all of our work, isn't it? Is who could be useful in helping us make the change? Who's uh, a conduit and useful, but also currently disengaged? feels like that's a question that we just don't ask often enough. That's right. And I think that gets back to your point about often thinking in, in too binary a way. It's like, well, you know, who's for and against? Well, that's not the only way to, you know, think about and to map the landscape of the environment that you're in. But again, you need that little creative prompting, yeah. right? You need that extra circle that you have to fill out to push yourself to come up with that that next layer, that less obvious layer of insight. Mm. And you talked a minute ago about getting out of your own way. There's also an element of sort of using what you have. So tell us about the banana challenge. (laughs) The banana challenge is a really fun challenge. That's actually um, about really thinking critically about your own personal point of view as a designer or as a creative person. So the banana challenge um, is a little uh, activity in which you um, think about yourself as if you're going to make an advertisement for selling more bananas 
and you, uh, this is a great activity to do with a team or with a group for either just a change of pace or to unlock a little bit of creative thinking. So you each need a banana and everybody gets a, a physical banana. You think about your own um, passions in life, what you're really obsessed with. So in my case, uh, I'm really obsessed with scuba diving. That's why the illustration on this particular page, my illustrator was kind enough to feature <laughs> my own obsession. And you, you think about like, in, in my case, like how could, I, how could I create a scene involving a banana that also relates to scuba diving? And then you make a little you know, advertisement mock-up of that and come up with a slogan and come up with an image. And there's a couple of things that are happening in this particular activity. So one is you get a chance to explore what's the connection between the thing that I am uniquely obsessed with, like the thing that I know more about than almost anything else, and use that as a way to bring some deeper level of, of idea generation to life in, in general, and you know specifically as applied to this, this banana challenge. But the other interesting thing that's happening is because you're using a physical banana and you're taking a real picture, you are forced to work in a, in the physical medium, in an analog medium. And often right now, because we all have these just incredibly easy to use digital tools, people default to making things in a PowerPoint or in a keynote or in a, some kind of, you know, just, just doing things on your phone. And there's kind of a flattening effect right? Like my ideas are going to look more similar to yours than they would otherwise if we're just using the exact same tools. Yeah, right. But if we're using, if we're like, you know, taking a picture with the actual light in the room and the actual texture of the things around the objects, even though we might then ultimately like digitize something, if we want to, if we want to distribute it, having that spark happen in the analog medium just gives it more rich texture. So in that particular challenge, Thomas Both, who, who came up with that assignment, he's trying to push students to get past their you know, comfort and familiarity with digital mediums of making and actually push into something that, you know, for those of us who are old, like <laughs> we're used to starting with a physical sketch or starting with a physical prototype, but actually it's it's becoming more and more common that people are so quick on all the on all the screens and all the apps people sort of start there and, and getting beyond that, pushing beyond that again, it helps you get into that more personal, more textured, more rich design space. Love it. Um, I'm going to ask you about one more and then we'll talk about some other stuff. Um, this one really struck me. So there's the one with the girl on the chair on YouTube. We'll put this up on the screen. Uh, well, maybe the way to do it in conventional audio podcast is it, can you just describe really briefly the, the image of the girl on the chair and then like, tell us about the, what really struck me was the reframe of language around trying to solve that problem. Absolutely. So what I want you to picture if you're listening to this is that there is a girl who's standing on a chair and she's uh, she seems to be in kind of a home in a domestic environment. She's, she's not wearing shoes and she's reaching as, as high as she can. She's in front of a really cluttered shelf. There are everything you can imagine is, are on these shelves. And you can see a lot of books, you can see some plants, you can see some art supplies, just tons of stuff. And the question to then ask yourself is, what does this girl need? And often what happens is that when people first see this image and then ask themselves this question is they come up with things like, well, she needs a book. Well, she needs that plant. She needs uh, a ladder, right? She needs a longer arm. <laughs> she needs a, you know, a parent to help her. And you challenge yourself to come up with as many things but what you'll start to notice is the first set of things you usually think about are nouns, they're objects. And it's, it's a, actually a kind of a trap for your brain 
Because if you think about that, then you're kind of stuck. You've already defined what the solution is. She needs a book. She needs a ladder. Well, if you reframe that and say she needs to reach, she needs to learn, she needs more knowledge, even she needs help. Those are, are more in the direction of verbs, right? And we often think about that language flip as a way to create a much wider solution space. A noun often just translates into a pretty obvious solution. A verb translates into a deeper need to accomplish something. Then you can actually push yourself to say, well, why? why? Like, just speculate. Like, look at this picture of the girl. Why does she want that book? Why does she want to reach? Why does she want to learn? And you can kind of start to come up with the kinds of things that if you were, you know, like interviewing this person to find out more about what you might design for them, you might ask these kinds of questions. And it's just that simple idea of the flip from the noun to the verb that, that many people find so um, helpful in thinking about, am I outlining a solution space where basically the solution's already known and already obvious, or am I actually creating a real creative prompt that I can then go much more broadly into, create that reframing language, a way to help her reach? Well, that could be a hundred things, right? And that's the kind of uh, skill in recognizing that when you're working on a problem, you are, you, you're, you're too constrained and you need a way to open it up. So your example with the dice is exactly that, right? You're recognizing like it's, I'm, I, the way I'm thinking about it is too constrained. I need a way, a, a way to prompt myself to open it up. This is, this is a great example of another way to open up that, that solution space. And it, I guess it shifts you from trying to design an object or think about it as a, how to solve the problem that we already know how to solve through to actually just connecting more with the empathy of the need, right? Like, like it, it feels like it's much more about how to just how to get underneath the skin of what, what could solutions be? Um, and, and what's the human need in, in terms of, of getting there? Exactly. Right. And, and that's important because you might still end up designing a product or a, phys a physical object but if you don't have insight about why that's special, why that will help somebody accomplish a, an underlying goal, like it's just another thing in a store on a shelf. And it's unlikely to have the kind of insight behind it that's meeting an unmet need, right? So, you, you know, it's like if you want to get into designing a ladder, that might be, this might be a great space, right? But if you want to actually create something that's that's differentiated, that is anticipating a need that the market might be coming upon in the future or that might be um, increasing in the future. You need these practices to get beneath exactly what you're saying, get yeah. beneath that surface and get into that layer of what's motivating people, what's important to people. What are the goals that people have that these, the, these things you might design might help them achieve? And that's what we mean when we say human-centered design, right? We're really trying to anticipate and to understand and to empathize to get at that root set of needs. So do you see design as a, like a route to empathy? I think design um, benefits from empathy. I think design can be a way um, to practice empathy. Um, and I also think there are other ways to gain empathy as well. Um, but we we have these learning experiences where perhaps for the first time, students are um, really talking to somebody who has a very different set of needs than themselves. So if, you know, a student who's, you know, 22 might be interviewing someone about the aging experience, right? And they're going to start to have a, a conversation that, 
you know, perhaps hopefully will generate some kind of empathy, some kind of um, depth in terms of really being able to see yourself um, in, in that other person's experience. And that can often lead to that kind of commitment that we saw with the Neura Health team, yeah. right? Those four students didn't start out, you know, really understanding much about that, that particular problem space, but they did actually connect those very human needs in some cases with experiences that, that um, one of the students had had prior around having a relative in the hospital. Um, the medical students certainly had been sort of like dancing around some of those issues, but it just, it came into focus when their emotions got involved. And that is, it helped them recognize the depth of this need might lead to a really long-term impactful solution. I'm curious to know, so you've been the executive director of D school for a little while. I'm curious to know what what does it look like working inside D school. So, I guess part of my part of my brain imagines uh, this group of people who are all so curious and open and like there's you know there's all this stuff happening. Like like do, is there ever a downside to that? Is there ever like a lack of structure? Is there do, do you sometimes do you all sit around really craving boredom and certainty and structure and, and, you know, the, the, the opposite of, of, of the design process, I guess. Well, I, I like to think that we have ways to get ourselves unstuck that we sometimes have to, you know, remember to, to practice just like with our students. Right. So actually testing ideas, actually, you know, um, experimenting, uh, with different, with different models. Um, you know, we are definitely, uh, a group of kind of unconventional iconoclastic people. And so you see lots of folks, you know, trying things in all different directions and that kind of within the container of the D school, like that's how, how we've organized ourselves, right. To be able to explore, um, lots of new spaces. So in the past couple of years, you know, we've seen more and more teaching teams propose classes around themes of racial justice, mm. for example, which is a huge topic in, in the U S yeah. and around the world. And that, that our ability to continue to provide a, a space where we can be really responsive from an educational standpoint and, and help students then work on the, the, the challenging issues that they care most about. That's really part of our DNA. But of course, then the, the flip side of that is like, we can't necessarily yeah, plan for that. Right. What, we can, what we can plan for is like, this is a creative environment. We try to unlock that. We try to set the conditions where people are going to be able to recognize those new needs and those new opportunities as they're coming up. And then operationally, we have to be able to accommodate that kind of agility. So that's, that's, you know, those are some of the design considerations I think about from an organizational design standpoint, from a process design standpoint, and thinking about um, the balance within leadership of saying like, hey, here's what, here's our mission, here's what we care about, here's our direction, our, here are our values, articulating that from time to time, but also having the flexibility to have all of the incredibly insightful people who are doing the teaching, who are doing the creative work to figure out the next set of ideas around curriculum to have that really kind of take take the lead when those great new ideas spring up. And I'll give you just one example. Um, there is a whole new set of mediums that people are designing in, right? So we were talking about the difference between like starting in an analog material versus in a digital one. Well, people are designing using machine learning. Right? They're creating products and services that are based on synthetic biology and blockchain and all of these new emerging technologies 
that actually are still not that widely known in terms of the fundamentals. How do you work with them? How do you build them? So we have a set of um, people in our teaching community who are really interested in figuring out how do we create learning experiences where people who might have no tech background can nonetheless be an effective participant on a team where somebody's designing like a conversation bot, right? Which is based on AI and really understand what are the considerations of designing that, that new service around who are all the different people who are going to experience it, around all the biases that can creep into the data sets that um, you might not be aware of? You might actually have some, some blind spots. You have to figure out how are we going to eliminate that from our product. So we have this incredibly creative group of instructors who are constantly thinking about what's the next challenge in design going to be. And that's a whole set of um, new, totally like brand new curriculum that's being developed. One of those assignments is in the book. It's called the um, uh, Build a Bot, actually. And it's about designing conversational bots and starting to wrestle with some of these new mediums. But you don't have to know how to code to be a part of the team that is designing with these kinds of emerging technologies. And that's really the experience that um, Ariam Mogos, who designed that particular assignment is trying to impart. It just sounds like such a, such a fascinating place to be and, a, and, and just a thing to be, to be part of and to be leading. I wonder if there's anything in particular that you are most proud of or find most interesting about the culture of working there. I think for me, one of the ways that it just always feels like home is that it is a very playful group of people. And so on the one hand, we're teaching classes in, you know, like, for example, a very serious topic, like how do you design uh, financial products and services for folks who have experienced a natural disaster, right? Thinking about insurance, thinking about what happens when your, your whole community experiences a wildfire. That's a very serious topic, right? At the same time, we want to use those kinds of um, prompts and experiences like you're describing with the dice or like, you know, um, the banana challenge to spark that kind of the part of you, the, the way the things you can access in your brain when you're in a more playful state. And so being able as an instructor to actually hold that space between a very serious topic and getting into the, the playfulness that can accompany real creativity that balance is very challenging. And that is one of those things that I'm incredibly proud of in my colleagues is that that ability to, to have both of those operate within our culture at the same time, that commitment to impact through design, as well as that playful spirit that helps people actually get into a more creative space. And is there anything, I mean, there's loads in the book, but is there anything just as a simple tool that you can leave people with that can just, you know, help somebody who's sat with their team and, you know, got team meeting coming up on Monday morning or whatever, like how can, how can they make that more playful? I mean, the one thing that comes to mind immediately is the uh, rock, paper, scissors tournament. Um, this is one of those activities that actually is so widely used at the D-School. Nobody can remember who started, like who brought it. And of course we all played rock, paper, scissors or Rochambeau as kids. But the way that this works is um, tournament style where everybody pairs up, you play, you play a couple of rounds, you declare a winner. And then the person who is the loser becomes the winner's biggest fan <laughs> and audibly, yeah. loudly cheering, enthusiastically cheering. And then that winner goes and finds another winner and they do a face off and then et cetera. So especially in a group of like, you know, if you're 
in a big workshop or you're at a conference, like a group of 50 or a hundred people, it gets very raucous and very loud. And all of a sudden you see a room full of like very serious adults, you know, like running around cheering for each other and playing this childhood game. And it's kind of um, an amazing way just to like bring a little bit of energy back to the group, bring a little bit of fun. Um, so that's one of my favorites just for like sheer energy. Yeah. And then there are a lot of exercises that are more about setting the conditions at the beginning of a collaboration to build trust between people, right? To actually just like have that one human moment of contact right at the beginning um, or, or, you know, as a refresher to actually create what's called psychological safety, right? The, you know, my feeling that if I come up with a weird or crazy idea, you're not going to judge me for it. You're going to, you're going to say like, cool idea. Let's put it up on the board and keep going. You know, it's like, there's a, a way to actually navigate um, treading on uncertain space, right? Where there's not a clear right answer, we're reframing the problem, we're introducing ambiguity and uncertainty. And that requires us to actually have some trust yeah, in each other yeah. that we're going to take care of how, you know, e each other feels in that. So there's a lot of exercises that are really, really geared toward building that kind of trust and safety. And there's some really lovely warm-ups, like the one about uh, everyone tells the story of their name and everyone talks about what they would bring to prepare for the zombie apocalypse. Um, so just similar right. sort of things where it just builds that psychological safety and it's about talking about something other than the work at the beginning, as you say, like with this kind of moment of human contact, which maybe leads on to the, the last thing I wanted to ask you is um, also very linked to psychological safety, actually, um, which is about kindness. And what I'm currently working on uh, with my new book is is to say that kindness and empathy can lead you towards trust and psychological safety. So kindness is another one of those conduits that would would end up fueling, you know, creativity, problem solving, critical thinking, all of the all of these other things. Um, I just love, love to know your thoughts on on kindness and leadership, and um, what do you see as 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 being kind leadership? I mean, one thing that um, immediately springs to mind that's very present in our culture is this idea of benevolent critique. So we want to be hard on the work, but soft on the people. And that is one place where kindness really manifests in our environment, right? It's like when you are critiquing students' work or the work of your colleagues or even your own, you want to separate the person from the, what, the work that they have produced. And you want to ask questions like, what's the goal of this work? Not like, you know, well, I really didn't like it when you decided to make it purple. And right, it's like, well, what are the goals of this work? And does being purple actually help it meet its goal, right? And almost by talking about it in the third person, rather than personalizing it, that, that is, again, it's a really nice language approach to be able to say, we're focused on the quality of the work and whether it's serving its goal, not whether you are a good designer. And of course, that allows just enough distance to help you become a better designer because you're taking the feedback and you're able to just slightly depersonalize it and, and, and make sure you can hear the critique, you can hear the feedback. And that, of course, then really makes that work more likely to succeed. So that's a great example of where, I mean, it's kind, right? We're, we're definitely kind-hearted yeah. people, but there's also a really under, like an underlying almost business reason for that kind of distinction um, and why we think benevolent critique works much better than, you know, sort of like just critique, be, being critical for the sake of like the critiquer looking smart or um, being able to kind of like achieve some kind of status that way. That's a lovely phrase, benevolent critique. I'm going to hold on to that one. 
Um, do you have any um, memories of either very kind or very unkind leaders that you've worked with yourself? Um, I'm sure all of us have worked with both <laughs> kind and unkind leaders. Um, I had a I had a, a boss early on in my career who I, I had a difficult time with, and I actually don't think she was trying to be unkind, but she um, really had a hard time. I, I think I'm still on the theme of critique. She, she had a hard time expressing what the goal was that she wanted me to achieve with a particular project until she saw initial work from me. So I would often have the experience where I would like not get a lot of good, you know, sort of direction and then make something that I thought was maybe meeting the need. And then she would look at it and say, eh, that wasn't what I had in mind. And I would feel extremely deflated because I you know, felt like, oh, there has to be some way to set me up better, you know, at the beginning, like how can we get better aligned at the mm, beginning of this project yeah. so that I'm not wasting all my time. Right. And I think I experienced that as a little bit of like a lack of respect for my time. I don't know that that's how she meant it. Like, I think it was probably um, a, a lack of skill rather than a, a malintent. Um, but I remember this was, again, it was one of my very first jobs out of college. That was really, I really, really struggled with that type of leadership. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that I value in a leader is where there is consideration for the, the time and the effort of all of the people in the organization. And people don't feel like they are doing a lot of busy work or doing things for no purpose, like that, that purpose is clear. I think that is actually an act of kindness as a leader. Um, one that I resonate with and perform better under, and then one that I try to instill as well in my own practice as a leader yeah it's like the kindest the kindest thing that you can do is give people this like the sense that their work has some purpose that they're not just engaged with batting emails back and forward that you're working towards some you know some kind of bigger goal and that in itself brings a a, a dignity like there's, there's a real kind of kindness to that right that's right i like that idea of dignity related to work. And I think that that is related to feeling like you have a purpose and feeling like there's meaning, you know, the things that you're doing, even when you are batting emails back and forth, there's a, there's a bigger goal. And I think that especially in a moment where, you know, many folks are, are separated from their teams or their clients or their customers. And we all feel like a little bit, maybe more, um, you know, uh, isolated from the, the work or the, the impact that we might be having. I think that that is even more important for leaders to articulate. What is the inspiration? What is the impact that we're having? How do we actually see the effect of our work and stay motivated, even though we're going through this really challenging period where the, you know, all of the norms and the ways that we're used to interacting with each other and, and being able to see and feel the impact of our work that might be, that might be shifting or that might have really changed. Those to be honest, feel like perfect questions to, to wrap us up. So um, the book is Creative Acts for Curious People, and I'm certainly going to be buying a couple of copies of these to, to put on people's desks who I work with. So, um, Sarah, it's just been such a pleasure um, having you on Beyond Busy. Is there anything you want to share as we finish? Like, um, how can people connect with you, learn more about your work, anything else like that? Um, well, you can find uh, easy access to the book at dschoolbooks.com. And there's actually a whole series of books coming out from the D School. The next set is going to come out in um, April uh, 2022. 
and um, they touch on a range of topics. Um, so if you kind of are interested in these kinds of design practices, there's a book about um, making maps and visualizing uh, storytelling with data. There's one about designing for belonging and creating a more inclusive culture within your organization. There's one about courage and how hard it is sometimes to get your ideas out in the world, but um, some, some practical advice for how to do that. So those are all at dschoolbooks.com. And then I'm on LinkedIn and on Instagram, and uh, I'd love to be in touch. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Graham. Great to talk to you. So there you go, Sarah Stein-Greenberg. And I said this right at the beginning of the episode, but I'm going to say it again at the end. The book is beautiful. The illustrations are incredible. And I actually emailed the editor of my next book, and said, hey, can we make a book like Sarah's? Because it's so nice. <laughs> and they said, nah, it's um, it's really expensive to make books like that. And we can't. So yeah, very jealous of just how good Sarah's book looks. And I guess if it's a D school book from Stanford, kind of has to have a kind of visual appeal, but it's beautifully designed. And uh, that really kind of adds to the appeal. The other thing with her book is because of how it's designed, and I don't know whether this is deliberate and I didn't get a chance to ask her, but it feels like it's sort of designed to be a book that you just hop in and out of rather than a book that you kind of go from start to finish. And that's definitely how I consumed it, which is really unusual for me, a methodical beginning to end sort of reader usually, but I really just had this instinct to jump around quite a lot. So um, yeah, just a really great book. And one that I guess Kindle just will not do do this book justice. This is like a real advert for printed paper-based books. So go and get creative acts for curious people. I'm certainly going to be using this as a bit of a textbook and coming back to it and spending some time with it. So really, really nice. Just love talking to Sarah. A really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. Just want to say thank you to Pavel and Emily, my podcast super team. And also thank you to Think Productive, our sponsors for the show. If you're interested in helping your team with productivity, helping your team to make space for what matters, then drop us a line. You can find out more at thinkproductive.com find your nearest office from there and find out how we can help you to increase productivity have a better work-life balance and ultimately do your best work so that's thinkproductive.com if you want to find out more and as i said a couple of weeks ago i'm just beavering away on the book and then doing some speaking gigs and stuff um, in and around that uh, i got a couple of really nice ones coming up so if you're interested in getting me in to speak at your company then that is something that i do and i realized the other day that i just don't really tell people that i do that and it, like it was quite funny at the end of last year someone had said to me oh can you come in and talk do you do talks and it's like yeah i mean that's the main way that i make a living you know did you know podcasting is uh not lucrative <laughs> so yeah my main source of income you know because also by the way books are not that lucrative either so uh, my main source of income is uh speaking within companies and then running the various programs that i do like six weeks to ninja which we'll be doing later on this year um, you can find out more about all of that stuff by the way at graham and if you want to inquire about me coming into your company to speak then you can email emily my assistant which is just e-m-i-l-i-e at graham Com and Emily will be able to look after you and uh, work out if your dates work and talk to you about pricing and all that stuff. So just Emily at GrahamAlcott.com. And uh, the final thing I want to say is that I have this weekly email. It's called Rev Up for the Week. And if you're not signed up, then basically what I do is just every Sunday night, 4.05 p.m. UK time, 4.05, just because I just plucked a time out of the air. I send out a positive or productive idea for the week ahead. So if you want to be in on that, then just go to Graham 
jamesalcott.com and uh, you can see all the little boxes that you can fill in on every page of that site actually it's got uh, one of those boxes to fill in for Revit for the week so yeah sign up there and uh, I send an email out every week and then what's lovely is lots of you reply and you know it's so nice on a Monday having just sent this thing out you know usually I'll kind of schedule it towards the end of the week and then um, usually Fridays I'm quite offline I kind of forget about what I've written and then it goes out Sunday I'm not I'm not really checking emails and then Monday morning I'm in there uh, looking at the email inbox and there's just like reactions to a thing that I did last week and it's just a really nice sort of feedback loop in a way so thank you if you're one of the people that that regularly responds to the rev up for the week emails and um, if you're not then this is your invitation i do try and reply to every single one uh so if someone sort of takes the time to send me what they thought of the email i'll try and take the time to reply doesn't always happen if i've got a busy week but yeah generally my default is that i reply to all of them so um if you want to get in touch with me then actually just being on the email and waiting for topics that really resonate with you is a really good way to do that so just go to graymorecott.com you can find out more there as always um we have the podcast in audio form but it's also on youtube so if you're a, a person that watches stuff on youtube i'd really appreciate you just going and subscribing to the youtube channel uh, if you just put in my name or put in beyond busy you will find the youtube channel there yeah i'd really love your help in just spreading the word about that youtube channel we're pretty new on on the youtube and uh it'd be really great to to get some more views on some of those videos and just kind of spread the beyond busy message a bit further so um please do go and subscribe on youtube and that's about what i've got to say i'm just beavering away on the book and uh just locked away in the shed trying to keep warm waiting for the spring to come um, and uh, yeah watching a bit of football hoping that there's going to be a baseball season because the players are on strike and uh, doing my usual uh, you know sort of touring through all the new stuff on Spotify and um, listening to some amazing new music as ever so that's that's me that's my life that's what I'm up to and I hope you're well and um, you know enjoying life wherever you are and I'll see you in two weeks time until then take care bye for now <laughs>